0: Hey there, I'm Christopher Schoenwald and welcome to Life As A, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. For listeners who have been tuning in regularly, you've probably noticed got this little spiel off the top where I'm asking people to go over to YouTube. I have a channel over there, life As a dot dot. And basically it's just highlights from the main audio versions, from the podcast versions of these talks that I have with these great guests. And the reason I'm plugging it so hard is that I think this content really does matter. And I wanna get it in front of people. I wanna get it in front of youth, people that are still undecided, who just don't know what they wanna do with their lives. And I think this platform, you No know, One YouTube, offers that opportunity to kind of get up close and personal with some of these guests in a different format. And if you're just not into audio, if you're not into podcasting as a whole, that's fine. That's okay. Well, you can still digest the content in a different way. I would encourage you, if you do know somebody who's looking for that career, looking for some ideas, direct them over to dot over on YouTube. You know, if they're into videos, they might just find what they're looking for over there. And while you are there, hey, I would always appreciate a like or subscribe. It's the best way to let that algorithm know that the content matters, that it should be put in front of others. Well, I do thank you for letting me ask this of you, but I think it's about time we get into today's episode. With the release of this episode happening at the start of a new year, it coincidentally links up to a phenomenon a lot of us grapple with around this time. I'm talking about transformation, or the reinventing of ourselves to hopefully bring out the best of what we can offer to the world. Now as many of you know, enacting, sustaining, and executing plans or resolutions to create a new you is not the easiest thing to do, is it? Well, imagine what it must be like for organizations, governments, or businesses with hundreds or thousands of employees trying to reinvent their own distinct personal culture in order to improve their operations and achieve goals. Well, that's exactly what our guest today is charged with. You're going to meet Lisa Carlin, a strategy execution consultant and specialist whose job and mission is to help organizations transform themselves from the inside out. We're going to dive into this world of management consulting to learn what it's all about, the challenges, rewards, and a lot more. So let me more formally introduce Lisa to you, and we can jumpstart this episode. Lisa Carlin is a strategy execution specialist and scale-up mentor and co-founder of Future Builders Group, a network of organizational development specialists. She works with ambitious leaders to turbocharge their transformation and business planning. Her clients have an independent sounding board and expert advice so they have absolute confidence they will achieve their goals. Now, Lisa started her career with McKinsey and Accenture and has worked in her own consultancy with many prestigious global clients through to government and venture capital funded early stage businesses. During this time, she has delivered or mentored clients on over 50 transformation programs with a 96% success rate. This compares to only around a 30% success rate, as reported by most research. Lisa is now passionate about improving implementation success and has established a membership academy for professionals to implement business, cultural, and digital transformation programs with influence and momentum. Lisa has also been an adjunct faculty member of one of Australia's top MBA programs. And since co founding Future Builders 10 years ago, she also finds time to volunteer as a chair of an education nonprofit. So, with all of this noted, here is my conversation with Lisa Carlin. Yeah, so welcome to the program. How are you doing today, Lisa?
1: Hi, Christopher. Great to be here.
0: Yeah, yeah, really excited for this conversation. And in terms of it all, I'd love to just jump right into it. I do have this first segment lined up. It's something called Coloring Wikipedia. And as my listeners know, it's a segment where I just introduce, you know, a definition or a term related to the guest profession. And what I went with for you is organizational development. And I do want to forewarn you, it is a little bit wordy and maybe a little bit on the long side of things here. But I'm hoping after I read it, you could, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, color it for us and, and make sense of it all. Does that sound all right to you? Sounds great. All right, excellent. Let me read that out for you, and uh, I'll ask for some comments after. So, organizational development. Organization development, or OD, is the study and implementation of practices, systems, and techniques that affect organizational change, the goal of which is to modify a group or organization's performance and or culture. The organizational changes are typically initiated by the group's stakeholders. Key concepts of OD theory include organizational climate, the mood or unique personality of an organization, which includes attitudes and beliefs that influence members' collective behavior, organizational culture, the deeply seated norms, values, and behaviors that members share, and organizational strategies, how an organization identifies problems, plans action, negotiates change, and evaluates progress. Yeah, like I said, a bit long, a bit wordy, but uh, first take, what would you say to that?
1: It's actually a pretty good definition as they go.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, I think it really nails the fact that culture is important. And I think about culture as the personality. That's the word I would use to describe. So if you're thinking of a person, it's like the personality of a person. Very hard to change. Yeah. And then it, it did a good job of pointing out that climate is quite different, which is more like the mood of the person. And that can change from minute to minute, day to day, week to week, depending on what's going on. And it's really important to think about when you're improving organizational effectiveness to think of it in terms of the culture and the climate, what's happening at the moment and what's happening in the broader context of how the organization operates, which is the personality or culture. And then the only other thing I would add to that in terms of like a summary, really, OD is all about improving organizational effectiveness through implementing the strategy of the business. And the strategy cannot be implemented unless you take, you know, really careful regard to the culture, particularly the culture of the organization, because it's how, how you get things done is through people. And that's what OD is all about.
0: Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think that simplifies it. And I think you could be rewriting this Wikipedia definition and adding some clarity there, because <laughs> I think that simplified it and put it in a way that I think it, it is easy to decipher and easy for people to, to kind of break down within their own minds. And I also like that point about how difficult it is to change. Like if you consider an organization as a person, like I was, I was considering that when I was researching for this, like in terms of shifting or changing a person's own behavior or habits like that, like you said, is a challenge. And like, I couldn't imagine going in and attempting to do so with an organization of 10 people, a hundred people, or 500 people. I mean, there, 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 must be some inherent challenges, but that's part of the reason I'm really excited for this conversation is to, to learn more about that. So In terms of that, maybe we could hear a little bit more about your company, Future Builders Group, the company that you've founded, and uh, that might lend even a little bit more clarity in terms of what OD is all about.
1: Well, I started my own business in 1999 after working for some of the bigger consulting firms, so Accenture in Cape Town and McKinsey in the US. And we can dive into that a little bit later, but essentially, I was working on my own doing all sorts of transformation in organization. And it got kind of lonely. So in 2013, I formed Future Builders with a group of colleagues that were experienced in organizational development and strategy execution. And we formed what's really a networked organization or a brand under which we all operate. So we all have independent businesses uh, as independent consultants, but we work together very closely and form teams Directly for the clients, depending on what their needs are. But none of us wanted to hire any staff and build out one of those businesses with, you know, 50, 100, 200 plus people, because there's this whole concept. We call it in Australia, and I hope you don't mind me using this term, bums on seats. I don't know if you use that in, in, you know, in the US or in in, in Japan. (laughs) What it refers to is. When you're in a, in a big consulting firm, you really need to get people as consultants, any professional service firm, you need to get people put out onto contracts and onto onto jobs to, to pay their salaries. And we didn't want to be bothered with that. We just wanted to do great work with interesting people. And so that's why we formed this umbrella organization. And uh, it's called Future Builders Group, all about building the future of an organization. And we don't need uh, any expensive offices or any overheads uh, besides our website, our mobile phones. And yeah, the rest is uh, just us working with clients.
0: Okay, excellent, excellent. In terms of the clients that you are working with, I mean, I mentioned off the top, You have quite a a wide array, whether it's with governments, whether it's with VC-backed startups, whether it's with major global brands. I mean, it it seems to run the gamut there. Is it lean any particular way or is it fairly evenly distributed?
1: It's, uh, It's fairly random, actually, depending on the relationships we have and where people move to, because a lot of our work we get from people moving around and people who know others. Most of us are based in in Australia, but we have colleagues in in the US, and we, you know, from that we've done work in China and in Europe with um, global multinationals. We've done quite a lot of work in government, and uh, and even in with venture capital funded uh, high growth tech companies. That's one of my favorites. So uh, it's quite a variety and that's why I love it so much.
0: Yeah, definitely. It would certainly keep you on your toes, I would assume.
1: (laughs) I always say uh, to folks, if you don't know what to do as a career and you really enjoy problem solving and variety, this is a great one because you can be in one day, you can be working for a small non-for-profit, you know, based locally. And in another day, you can be running a meeting with, you know, hundreds of people in a marketing function out of the US and Europe.
0: Yeah. Talk about like you know, certain challenges, but also a lot of reward in, in in doing that. It's a theme that comes up on this program quite a bit is is wearing several different hats and the actual fulfillment that people get from that. I mean, at first glance, it could be stressful. It can be, you know, pressure packed, but really, I mean, at the end of the day, that's where a lot of the value is derived from, at least from the, the conversation. Exactly. Well, maybe, you know, in terms of sliding into another segment here, a pathways one, we could rewind a little bit further before you even founded Future Builders. You know, what led you into the world of consulting? Like you'd mentioned you'd worked for McKinsey and Accenture, but even before that, was there anything that maybe in your youth that was pointing you in that direction?
1: Well, you know, Christopher, yeah. You know, I remember doing one of those career reports that, you know, where you do a diagnostic tool and then you get back a report that tells you a little bit about your personality. And it said that one of my top skills that I and, and things that I like to do is around persuasion and so a few different careers came up like being a lawyer being a teacher or being a, a consultant and that's what got me interested because of the ability to persuade people and you know do analytical work and meet lots of people and have that variety so it law it became too difficult because i was living in south africa and was um, keen to move around a bit and uh, and travel, and you can't really. You you need to think about if you you know if you want to work, want to travel, I guess, with a career, then it needs to be transportable. And management consulting is one of the most transportable professions, really. That was a huge attraction, and the other one was to be able to have the variety of work, and uh, so that was fantastic. Trajectory, um, I guess, was uh, I did an undergraduate in um, finance and accounting, which was a you know, business degree, basically. And, uh, but I was always interested in technology and the digital side of things. And so, as a hobby, I guess I had that as a, um, when I was at high school. And I, I had an opportunity to go work for Accenture and it was then called Anderson Consulting and doing systems development. And I just loved that idea. I was fortunate to, to get a role with them and, uh, it was really interesting, learned how to do coding and system development in different languages. The thing I hadn't really realized is having tech as a hobby and having tech doing tech as a career, if you're going to be a developer, you're going to be behind a computer most of the time. And whereas I actually really liked being with people more and I found the detail, it's a really detailed role. So and the other thing is. I became really interested in the fact that the systems weren't always perfectly implemented because it wasn't because of the code or the way it was you know the the actual structure of the of the program itself, it, that we were the software that we were creating, but it was the people and how they used the systems, so the ergonomics of the system, how they were trained to use the system. And that's what got me interested in the people side of things. And just as I was moving over to the change management practice, which would be more of the OD focused work, I got an opportunity, well, I went traveling in the US and got an opportunity to go and work for McKinsey. And it was either go back to Accenture in moving to the US and and working in change management or have an opportunity to work in strategy and all sorts of different projects for a famous consulting firm. And I thought, fantastic, I'm going to go and do that. So I was there for um, just under two years, and uh, that was really interesting, again, doing strategic consulting work. And again, I kind of got more and more interested in the people side of things. So you you present a beautifully uh, researched and uh, investigated and thought about beautiful report, and then you worry, well, will they actually implement this or how will they implement it? So it's, it's all about the people. And so again, became interested in the people. And that's really what took me to the organizational change, organizational development focus, still doing strategy execution, but bringing it all together in a people orientated way.
0: Yeah, it sounds to me like where you were able to thread that needle of of having this interest of being around people and interacting with people, but yet still, you know, being able to to explore and explore notions of your own curiosity related to things like technology and, and, and other areas, you know, other areas for that matter, too. So yeah, that's really interesting. And I mean, I'm guessing here, like that element of curiosity towards the world was with you at a, at a younger age?
1: Absolutely. My mother says I drove her mad when I was three, four, five years old, because I used to ask her why. And then she used to give me an answer and then I'd go, but why? <laughs> and then she'd give me another answer and I'm, but why? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And that's a good, uh, you know, I mean, no, yeah, people haven't actually asked me that before. Uh, Christopher, so good question, but I think that's, that's that curiosity, and that, that's probably where it came from a very young age.
0: Okay. Well, returning to the present here, I do have this other segment, a day in the life, and maybe we could add further clarity in terms of the work that you're doing. We've you know spoken already to this point in terms of some of the clients that you work with, and uh, and, and broadly speaking, like the area of focus that you're generally concerned with. But maybe we could hear this day in the life of, you know, a particular day or even a week for you. I'm sure it varies based on the project, based on the client, but, but all the same, what, what would you say to that?
1: Sure. So I'll, I'll answer it in two ways. Um, one is the work way, which, and then the other one would be the more personal way of how it feels. The work yeah, is very varied. I guess the, 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 the constant sort of thread through all of it is that there's a rigor to the work, an analytical rigor to the work. Uh, to taking a problem and learning how to solve it and break it down. So I often see uh, folks who've been successful in a particular career become the expert in that. And I wonder how people do that if they haven't solved a a wide variety of problems, because the world is so complex that even if you were uh, a fantastic IT director in one business, it doesn't always mean you can advise people or be successful in other environments or entrepreneurs who've moved around or, you know, other successful folks. So whereas in consulting, you actually learn a rigorous way of breaking down a problem into components, into questions that you want to ask, answer and forming hypotheses and testing them out. So you get a really fast way to solve complex complex problems and that there is nothing more exciting than doing that than going into a workshop with clients in a room full of people or one-on-one because I often do a lot of mentoring and you start with a blank piece of paper and the client's got all this sort of stuff in their head that they're just trying to figure out what the answer is like what market do I go into? Um, what, what goals should I do have next year? Um, how do I execute those goals? I want to take my organisation and make it look from A to B. How do I get there? You know, I want to change the culture. I want to improve the sales. I want to. I want to. How do I get? There? And it's just fascinating. So from a work point of view, it's great. Yeah. In terms of personal, I think you've got to live with a lot of unpredictability and ambiguity if you want to be to know exactly what you're doing and where you're going to be at a particular day at a particular time, then this is not the profession for you. The variety is incredible. So when I was in my 20s, I remember sitting on corporate jets going to McKinsey clients out in the middle of nowhere to, you know, to investigate different things at different factories or wherever I was going. And uh, you just don't know, you don't know where you're going to be. That's, that, you know, from a personal point of view, that variety is—I I love that variety. Yeah, but that's not for everybody. Nowadays, I tend to do a lot more one-on-one advising instead of running the programs of change. I used to do a lot of the program management, program director roles, running these big change programs for the last twenty-something years. Now, I tend to advise the teams or advise the executives who are running the transformation programs. And so I do a lot more of it from home. Uh, I sit outside, I've got a lovely sunny veranda, and I sit outside with the dogs in the garden and uh, I am on the phone or I'm on my computer or you know um, for large chunks of the day. And so and then I'll go into the city maybe once a week or so to and stack all my face-to-face meetings on one day. that that's so it's a different it's a very different cadence.
0: Yeah. It sounds like it It sounds like you got a few things figured out though. It sounds appealing to me at least and probably to a lot of people as well, I would assume. Yeah. And again, I I think one of the things that stood out to you is again, returning to that notion of curiosity and variety, as you've said a couple times over, I mean, if this is, or if those are things that appeal to you, then, then this could be, you know, a, a way of sort of like itching that, you know, like that, that, that sort of like need to, to have those elements within your life. So, yeah. Well, I do have a few more questions I want to get into here in this Q and A discovery another segment. We kind of just continue this back and forth. And in terms of your work, to continue on this conversation, this point, you know, in the bio uh, when I was introducing you, you know, you talked about something called transformation programs and how you've personally mentored clients on over fifty of these with a ninety six percent success rate, as opposed to the standard average rate being around thirty percent. Now, first off, like I'm pretty confident that probably most of my listeners wouldn't be familiar with a transformation project. So maybe you could begin there in terms of breaking down what that is all about. And then I do have a couple more questions in relation to that once we get through that first question.
1: Sure, Christopher, you know, it's funny for even people who've been in the in corporate, you know, for years will still ask me, what do I mean by transformation? So it's it's one of those funny words. I've got a friend who's a neurologist. And if you're, you know, a neurologist, some kind of medical specialist, it's very defined, your name, of what you, your title, and what everybody knows what you do. When people ask you that at dinner parties or functions, and I never know how to explain it myself. And the reason for that is that there are many different words that describe what I do, and they have different nuances in different organizations. So the word that I use most often that people understand is strategy execution. So developing a strategy for a business and then figuring out how to execute it, right? So that's one way you could describe transformation. Another way is using the words organizational change or change management, where you're changing from A to B. So A might be a traditional organization or hierarchical organization, and B might be a nice entrepreneurship, entrepreneurial, uh, innovative organization or the a to b might be uh, we've had very low stagnant sales growth and now we want you know hyper growth triple digit sales growth how do we how do we reinvent ourselves to get there so it could mean lots of things and some people just call it projects so it's projects scale lots and lots of projects that we want to implement to make us different
0: Now, getting into the second part of my question here, in terms of those numbers, like 96% success rates, as opposed to industry averages around 30%. I mean, what goes into these successful outcomes? I mean, clearly you and your organization or the people that you work with are doing something right here. There must be some secret sauce, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about your approach to, to achieving such numbers.
1: Well, a really big one is a multidisciplinary approach. So to be able to Effect a transformation, you need different types of skills. So, you need change management skills, like I mentioned, and I mentioned projects. So, you need project management skills. And you also need some business strategy or commercial understanding of how the business works, in particular, whatever the transformation is you're doing. So, if you're doing a customer service transformation, transforming the customer experience, you might need some skills in that. So, let's call those business skills change management or people skills and then the third being project management skills. So being able to have all three together. So that is is absolutely essential. And the other piece that is really helpful is one you mentioned right up front with your definition and that was culture. So understanding what the personality of the organization is like enables you to design what you're doing to fit that particular personality. That particular organization.
0: Okay, I see.
1: Yeah, so there's there's two things there.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. know I appreciate hearing that. You know, I appreciate you sharing that. Rather, in terms of identifying what those markers are and, and what goes into these successful outcomes, returning back to you, I'm mean, like, how in your organization, your people that you work with, how do you guys go about it so consistently? Is it, it just like the wealth of experience that you've you know accrued over the years and and a lot of this expertise would would go into it, like? Ninety-six versus thirty percent. Of course, you know that's that's a stark difference there. Like, wh- wh- what would you account for? Like, why it's so low as a a standard within the industry, as opposed to what you guys are able to hit on?
1: You know, Christopher, I I don't. I, th- I think a lot of the folks who are working on transformation will have the project management skills to manage the kind of resources and the timeline and the Gantt charts but they don't always understand the people side of things. And the the folks that understand the people side of things are, they often kind of ring-fenced as change managers and it's sort of bolted onto the project rather than integrated into how the project is designed and managed. And I think if you can get that integration happening really well, So the person who, who, or people who run the programs, these change programs or transformation programs have closely interrelated set of these skills that together, then they are likely to be a lot more successful. And because I'm so passionate about it, this is why I've created a membership to teach this to people. So it's because unfortunately, when you learn how to do this, you either learn project management, or, and you become a project manager, or you learn change management or organisational development and you come in from that aspect, or the third one, you come in from the, the, the sort of perspective of business. So you study business or you work in a business role and then you come to land up doing transformation work. And people usually carry that perspective with them to their work and they don't really understand the integration of them. And I've been very fortunate by having roles in, in so many different contexts in ways I've been able to uh, put on each hat separately and look at that piece and then put them all together. And that's why I teach it in, a, in my membership, which is called Turbocharge Your Transformation, because I really believe that the only way you can be successful in uh, large scale transformation and, and growth is to is to take these multidisciplinary perspectives.
0: Yeah, hmm. oh, that's really interesting. Would you say, I mean, within the industry as a whole, working at some of these big firms that they, they, they keep it within those pillars, like individual sort of like backgrounds and strengths and, and, and they go about it that way and that would account maybe as well for some of these lower success rates. Whereas your approach as you just explained is integrating all three of them and bringing them together in such a way that, you know, digs deeper perhaps and, and adds more value. Would that be like a structural issue within the industry?
1: There's definitely structural issues in that you tend to uh, work in a particular service line or practice area and, you know, for example, you you might be doing strategy development only or another area might be doing the implementation and the two areas don't always work together. And the problem is without really, the the strategists are the ones that tend to really understand the analytical side and how to scope the future of an organisation and the industry and and what the organisation should be doing to differentiate itself. The the people that execute it understand the culture and how things can be implemented. And if you can bring those together and involve people right up front at the start of developing the strategy, then you get the best of both.
0: That's right. Yeah. And people
1: can't always do that. Yeah. And they can't always know what they don't know. So they might not know to bring in other sorts of skills.
0: I have this other question here kind of continues on with what we've just been speaking about, you know, in terms of having success and, and whatnot, and some of the critical elements of doing this job well, would you say that, you know, within this consulting realm, The relevant experience certainly is important, but would you say that that would, nine times out of 10, always trump inherent skills or abilities that a person might bring to the profession itself, or?
1: It's a combination, but what's interesting is that it can come from the most unusual places, I'd say, and sometimes without any formal training. Mm. So, I'll give you an example. We worked on a sales improvement program with an executive assistant of the divisional manager. And she was really well respected by all the executives. She'd been there for a long time, they all knew her well. Lovely sense of humor, lovely way of communicating with people. And she commanded a lot of attention and interest in what she was doing because of her lovely personality and her relationships. And she just knew how to craft an email to get people interested, to come to workshops, to come to meetings, to get involved in projects. And she worked alongside me doing the really heavy lifting of running the program. So she was doing the project coordination, I guess you could call it, you know, the the most junior project skills. And over time, I mentored her and I was able to transfer more and more to her to do more and more work for her to do. And then as a consultant, the client didn't need to pay me as much. So I could only land land up working two days a week, then one day a week, and then I could fade out altogether and let her carry on and just come in and run the um, planning workshops every couple of weeks. And that was just perfect because you know that's what I love to do—to be able to train our people in the organization to take on those roles. And just with a bit of guidance, she was amazing. She was able to do a lot of the change management work as a natural, the project management work as a natural. When once we'd had the structure, the governance structure, and the the project plan in place, she was able to execute it really, really well. And she was working closely with the divisional manager and myself. And he had all the skills of really the business focus and he worked very well and trusted her. So it was just, you know, worked beautifully.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The reason I asked that question, I mean, at times you do run across people like that, that just have that almost like that it factor and that like a high social IQ where they're able to read the room and understand what's going on, but then also take into account all these other factors and bring it together in a way that that allows for change like that to take place. And uh, I was curious about that element of whether or not you've experienced that and certainly the way you just, you know, laid that story out there for that does exist and that does happen. And uh, of course, I mean, coupling that with relevant experience and guidance, that's where uh, that's where magic can happen, I suppose, from time to time. Okay.
1: Yeah, it's really exciting, really exciting for people's careers.
0: Yeah, I bet. I bet. And uh w- would you happen to have another client success story as well that would illustrate some of, you know, some of your own skills, some of your own philosophies towards helping, you know, projects get off the ground or, you know, ultimately lead to successful outcomes. You know, maybe some of the roles and responsibilities you held within those projects. And uh yeah, I'm sure listeners would love to to have like a defined sort of look at, you know, something that you have worked on and something you're proud of, perhaps.
1: Sure. Well, um let me tell you about a culture change that we did at an industrial business. And this is a business with thousands of employees and a blue-collar environment. And the the divisional manager, VP of the, the area, was concerned about the culture from one of the surveys that they'd done. So the personality or culture of the organization, the way it was described, was one where uh, people were, you know, pointing blame at others. They'd used an instrument called human synergistics organizational culture inventory which basically is a one of many uh, culture tools that are excellent and it describes the culture in a quantitative way and so you can measure exactly a percentage of different styles that are desirable and different styles that are less desirable and the non-desirable or styles that were not that constructive were around this pointing blame and opposing new ideas and it comes from a very strong fear base so the client wanted to know what to do and how to resolve it. And this is, a, this is one that I find very often, right? So it's like a, that blank page that I mentioned. It's like, yeah, we've got this problem. We don't really know what's driving it. We don't really know what to do, but we know we, we want to fix it. So I had worked with this organization before and the previous project had been very successful. So the VP or divisional exec uh, asked me if I could lead the program for them, working with him. And uh, he said, help me figure out what to do. So what we did was we started talking to people, talking with people in different parts of the organization to understand, to uncover what some of those root causes are. And to cut a very long story short, so we did a lot of initial high-level problem solving and talking to people, and then what we did was we we realised that we had an early sense of where some of the issues could be, and we realised that there was a, a big disconnect between the different levels of the organisation, what the people at the top were, were seeing and hearing versus the people at the bottom of the organisation. So we developed a very structured, hierarchically-based listening process where we started with the factory floor and got people together. We showed them some information from the survey. We worked through what it could be, and we got their reactions. And we did it by level so that people would feel safe. And we got some really interesting quotes or what people had said, which some of them was quite quite a big surprise. So, for example, when somebody makes a mistake on the factory floor – how one of their supervisors went up to him and said, can't you read, you idiot, right? You've done this wrong. You haven't followed the instructions loudly in front of other people. And so this is where this fear-based culture came from with these supervisors that were expecting certain quality and not getting it, and then just pointing fingers and laying blame. And, And then there were consequences for people being stood down from their work if they you know had done this a lot and and or done the wrong thing and people don't get paid sometimes when they don't work or they're embarrassed or you know they can lose their jobs so what we did was we played back what some of those sound bites to people at the next level up to the supervisors and so they couldn't actually say oh no no it wasn't me it wasn't me it wasn't this wasn't us this didn't happen right so we knew the culture, so we were able to use the culture positively. We recorded them with somebody else's voices so that it didn't, so it was completely de-identified and safe for people. And then we spoke to them about their reactions and then played it up a level and a level until it went eventually up, some of this went up to the board level even. And people were, like, you know, the executives at the top of the organisation were astounded. And so that in itself, even though it was a diagnostic, Right of of understanding what was going on, it was also a very positive intervention because it gave people an immediate sense of a reflection of what's actually happening and what they don't want. You know what they want to happen and what they don't want to happen. So that just gives you an idea of what the start of the project looked like. It was a very successful project. When we did another survey eighteen months later the organization had significantly improved on their percentage scores. So statistically significant shifts and that, you know, we know that it's hard to do with culture. It takes a long time and it's hard to do. So uh, we're very happy.
0: Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. How interesting. And Also too, one other thing that stood out to me is like the creativity involved in that as well. I mean, maybe like that idea of, of playing back some of the, you know, the recorded comments and, and and having that being a driving force to, to really shine some light on what was taking place or what that old culture was about and and why it was potentially creating all the issues that it was, you know, and what was taking place within that organization. So I, I, yeah, I mean that, that element to the work as well, I would assume would be there. I mean, some degree of creativity and how you're presenting it or how you're even going about, you know, trying to get to the much results. So.
1: Yeah. yeah, very much so. And, and that creativity comes from multidisciplinary skills on the project team so i had a fantastic project team and by bringing all the people together to brainstorm what do we do yeah you but know, ideas don't have to all come from me they can come, and they don't have to all come from the client they can come from the project team together there's an amazing synergistic effect and uh you know over the years i've we've done amazing things as a, as a team i've worked with amazing people to be really really creative
0: yeah i bet yeah. i bet well in terms of a project like that i can certainly see how that would you know, allow an individual working within this field to derive a you know a pretty decent sense of satisfaction. You know, seeing results like that and seeing the client pleased with those types of results. You know, on the flip side of things, there's I'm sure some challenging moments along the way. And to to give this kind of broad perspective or broad look at the work of a consultant and, and the type of work that you're involved with, what would you say are some of the I mean the two or three biggest challenges, at least for you personally speaking?
1: One of them is uh, people ask me you know, what it's like to be a consultant. And sometimes you go into environments and they're actually very hostile and they don't actually, people don't like consultants because they've had so many consultants in there beforehand and they've told them to do stuff and they've professed to know more about the environment than the clients themselves. And I think that really triggers very Uh, adverse reactions in people, you know, they feel very, you know, insulted or, you know, um, they they feel uh, made less of and, you know, there's a a, a fabulous uh, model by someone called David Rock which describes um, the acronym SCARF and how people's status is affected adversely. You know, if you push people into a threat situation, they lose that sense of control. That's the C, A, autonomy relatedness and fairness, they don't feel that it's fair, they don't feel related to the other people anymore. And that's what happens a lot. So, you know, it's almost like you've got a big dirty sign on your back saying consult management consultant and nobody likes you. So I think because of that history uh, in organisations, you are very often walking in with expectation that you're going to do something to people. And that's probably the biggest challenge I find. Uh, the work is is interesting. The work can be intellectually challenging, but it, it's still easier than the complexities of people and culture. And being able to shift a whole lot of people at scale in an organization from one behavior to another, and that's the real challenge and art in consulting work. Because you can, you know, you can have all the best ideas. You remember that beautiful McKinsey consultant report that you know I, I you know, we presented beautiful ideas but unless you can see those results being implemented in a tangible way that helps the business then you haven't done your job properly
0: yeah well i would imagine as well it's about building those relationships and having that human connection so you can ultimately get the buy-in on all these terrific ideas that you're you know putting together for the client you know at the end of the day that's probably what it really does boil down to doesn't it
1: Exactly. I can tell you a story of one of them if you've got time. Yeah, Would you well, like that's it? perfect timing. Story? We're just
0: heading right into our water cooler story segment. So, yeah. Oh, well-timed. there you go.
1: Okay. Water cooler moment. Well, let me talk to you about a, a challenge where a, a client had had three separate reports from three separate consultancies over the years. And they all, they'd all gone in, recommended something, and nothing was implemented. And I read through those reports when I started the work to see what had been done, what had been recommended, so that I had in mind what the previous issues were. And surprise, surprise, the report said basically the same sort of thing. Now, that client was, they didn't want us there. Myself and the team that I brought in had been appointed by their boss's boss, right? So again, a VP of an area, equivalent, like ran the division. And they didn't want to because they were really good people working really hard to try and make their area work. A lot of the work was manual processing that they were doing, administrative processing, because it just was not automated well. And so they were managing a lot of things by exception. And they looked at us with complete disbelief, like we are working so hard, Lisa, And you want to pull us away from this to spend more time with yet another group that's going to then be here for a second and then disappear and nothing's going to change. And they were pretty frustrated and fairly honest with us in their response when we first walked in there. What we did that was different is that we formed a multidisciplinary project team with members of the division at different levels. And immediately, that respected them and what their opinions were. And we taught them. I brought in a, a Lean Six Sigma specialist who, because we looked at some of their processes, you know, we could either go in there really quickly and just say these are the processes that you need to fix, or we could teach them how to, you know, the saying "fish for themselves," yeah. you know. And we, that's what we did. We taught them how to do the, the six, Lean Six Sigma process themselves. They did it with, with us. We identified what the what the issues were with them. We tackled them with the people. and it was amazing how much was achieved in in making things work better. And then the, then came up, you know, we, we do a, a, a every cycle on that, that one I can't remember if, if we might, so let's say it was after three months or six weeks or whatever the the, the reporting was to the steering committee. And in usually with these sorts of things, the program manager like myself would go up to the steering committee at head office and would report back on the program and then any issues would be taken back to the you know the, the folks on the team. What I did instead was I got the entire team up on the train. In Sydney, we have these fabulous train systems and we got everybody up on the train and got into the head office and all of them joined us. Well, I first asked the executive if he'd mind us, me bringing the whole team and he thought that was a bit unusual. And, you know, we only had a certain amount of time for the meeting and didn't want to be bogged down with lots of people on the agenda. I, I said to him, just just trust me, leave it to me. And he did. And uh, he was very good about that. And the folks, I can't explain to you how nervous they were on that train. They had never been to a meeting at this level. They'd never had any exposure like this with the senior managers. They were all incredibly nervous. And as the meeting progressed, you could just see the smiles on these people's faces that they were being appreciated for what they've done. Everyone had a tiny little cameo role, and we were able to explain in you know in a short amount of time what had been done, the impact on the business, the time saved by all these um, automated processes, and the executive was just he was just riveted and so excited to see what they'd done, and these people were so proud. And, you know, that just makes me, besides the fact that the business results had improved significantly, you know, it just feels so rewarding to see people being appreciated for what they're doing and, and having such a big change. We were a team.
0: Yeah. We worked yeah. together
1: as a team and they felt part of it and appreciated. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a great story. I mean, I think it speaks to that point of just like human connection, right? And bringing that together. Yeah. Like you, you can look at a business and you can analyze it from a technical perspective an analytical perspective as well but ultimately like what runs a company are its people right and we we hear that over and over again but there's so much truth to that right and when you connect it on those levels and you have these different layers of the company the people as you've referenced a few times over whether it's senior management whether it's people in the middle whether it's people you know junior right at the bottom and you're connecting them and they can truly understand one another and like the challenges what each other is going through that's when the breakthroughs seemingly would happen and sometimes I guess that's in a very simplistic sense, what the role of somebody like yourself is involved in, and how you make these connections, and how you make you know each other's words make sense, you know, in between like translating between these different groups of people within an organization. Yeah, I love that. I really like that story. Well, I do have one last segment here that I want to shift into a crystal ball segment here, Lisa. And yeah, as the name implies, we're looking towards the to future, trans predictions, so on and so forth. And within the world that we're living in, obviously. AI. I mean, I should just be renaming the segment, the AI segment, because invariably that's what comes up. But I'd love to know about how AI is affecting your world within your sphere of influence. You know, what what elements of your business or job duties, responsibilities are being shifted, changed or impacted by AI? And then the second part of my question is, what elements of your work do you think are immune, perhaps to AI, you know, are going to remain more or less untouched?
1: Thank you for that question because it's something I've thought about deeply. And in the membership that I have, I do a whole module on AI skills to improve productivity for folks uh, implementing transformation. Because I think it is that important; it is that uh, significant a change for um, um, for my industry. So, uh, so absolutely uh, critical. And what I've taught people in there, and I, I I bring this up in you know every month we have a different module and I. I weave it into all the modules as well, is the need to use those AI tools that are out there like ChatGPT in order to be more productive and in order to generate ideas. Because if we don't, there's no question we will be left behind and we will be replaced by other people who are using those tools because they can work in a much more creative and efficient way. So specifically, some of the things that folks can do is is use ChatGPT to generate creative, you know, brainstormed solutions. And, you know, and I use that a lot. So I write a a free weekly newsletter called TurboCharge Weekly where I, I provide a selection of usually two or three tips every week on transformation and strategy execution. And I like to use ChatGPT as a, you know, come up with a checklist of things in order to do X, Y, Z. And then I use that to double check myself. Right? Have have I missed anything important here? If I want to write, rewrite something as a, in a you know in a catchy way, I'll use ChatGPT to help me. You know, come up with those statements that kind of that are catchy or, or uh, headings of emails. So that's for me as a, as a writing the newsletters. But it's it's as important for the people who are in the projects because they need to use these tools to come up with. A line for the heading of an email that's going to go to all the stakeholders on the project to invite them to a workshop or whatever, you know, to encourage them to pay attention to that email amongst all the sea of other emails, the fifty-plus emails that they're receiving every day. So by using AI in those kind of creative ways to design a workshop, to design something that you want to write, to write a piece of change management literature, to uh, check your, you know, check your ideas, to generate a video to edit a video that you're going to use for communications, you're then able to achieve a lot more because previously it would have taken you a lot longer to draft things. Uh, it would have taken you a lot longer to design a video a script, for example, or then edit the script. So there are fabulous tools that I like to share, you know, with folks and they're evolving all the time. And uh and and you know that they're you very useful in order to make us Better at what we do. Yeah. So that's where I and, and presentations as well, you know, creating fantastic presentations. I was using a purpose-built a tool, and now, you know, I've been using Canvas, fabulous. And even though I don't always use the PowerPoint or the document that AI generates for me, I use it as a prompt. What have I forgotten? What have I not thought of? So it's it's really useful. Where it can't help is the I want to use the word customization, personalization. You know that really the the difficult problems to solve. Sure, you can get little checklists and tips and things like that. But at the end of the day, it's it's human judgment about how you're going to interact with your client and 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 which of those ideas you take forward and in what way. And I. Don't think we're quite there yet.
0: <laughs> no, I wouldn't think so. I mean, that that story that you shared just a few moments earlier, you know, like I don't think AI stepping into that and and breaking that down in such a way and building relationships with the people involved, with all these parties and bringing everybody together, right? Like there, there has to be that element of, of that human touch and, 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 you know, connection and understanding that is, you know, beyond AI, at least in its present form right now. But, you know, it, it's something that comes up over and over in this program you know, invariably we're whatever industry we're speaking about, like AI viewed as this tool and the way that you just kind of laid it out there in all these different ways that it can really optimize and and add those different levels or layers of efficiency. I think that's where it's at. And it's just even sometimes like what you said of checking an idea, you know, and like, are you on the right track? Or if you're just in need of like a creative sort of boost and you you, you get a new idea here and you kind of shift it around, change it and go from there. And I think that's what's coming up over and over again at least right now with where ai is at i think that's a good frame of reference for a lot of people to kind of view it yeah i appreciate you uh, sharing your comments on that but i gotta say though lisa like we have just blown through this conversation i can't believe we're nearly into an hour here and uh, this might be a nice point to draw things to a close but once again it's been a true true pleasure and i've really enjoyed this conversation from start to finish so thanks so much
1: Thanks for having me, Christopher. I love talking with you.
0: For those interested in learning more about Lisa and her work, you can do so via her company, Future Builders Group. You can also subscribe to her newsletter, Turbo Charge Weekly. And also, you can find her and connect with her on LinkedIn. And for reference, all this information, including links, will be in the show notes. And also, hey, I mean, if you like today's show, please be sure to tell a friend and share. To show further support, you can rate, review, and subscribe wherever you access your podcasts. And then lastly, head on over to YouTube. As mentioned, I do have video highlights of the conversation over there. And don't forget to join us on the next episode of Life As A, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living.